We finished up Titus last week, and uh, I know I got a lot of questions about where we were going from here. Where, what, where are we going to do now? Well, John chapter 7. <laughs> the answer is we're going to go back to John for a while. I know John's kind of been a running theme around here for a couple of years now. We've been in it and out of it, and now we're back in it, and we've done that a couple of times. We're in John 7, and I want to pick up right where we left off in verse 25. And we, step, we stepped out of John to, to cover something that was uh, maybe, maybe a pressing or a, a God-given pressing need, the need to discuss our role as a church and, our, and the aspect of, the, of Christian culture inside the church, discipleship and, and uh, the, the idea of Christian community. It was a pressing need because God made it pressing. And so we stopped. We broke off, really, doing something, doing something that I don't normally like to do. We broke off right in the middle of the chapter to handle that and talk about that. And I'm thankful we did. I think it's borne a lot of fruit already, and there's a lot of fruit to come in the days to come uh, over the, the, the series in Titus. But I want to pick right back up in John 7. And to do that, I want to give a little bit of a background so we kind of catch where we are and remember these things. First of all, if you'll look back in John 7, verse 1, you see that Jesus, after feeding the 5,000 and teaching about being the bread of life, He left the countryside and He, he began to go throughout Galilee, all through Galilee. Now, He was not in Judea at this time in His ministry. He had left Judea previously because of the persecution which was there. I mean, the, the, the threat of his life was was very very real, and it was it was a threat which they were willing to carry out. If you see in uh, John seven, you see that uh, it the the concern of the disciples, right? In John seven, you know he says we're going to leave here, uh, and, and the, he, they're telling him leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing for. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. So he's being implored by his brothers to go to the, the Feast of Booths in Judea, in Jerusalem. And he says, no, it's not my time yet. You see that? You, my time has not yet come. That's a clear indication that Jesus understands the leadership wants to kill him. But it's not time yet. And so he's waiting on God's time. And we talked about God's timing. The fact that it's often different than our timing. It's different than the world's timing. We see another instance of God's timing in John chapter 11, which we'll get there by the grace of God, Lord willing. Carl Brown be proud. Lord willing, we'll get to John 11. And in John 11, he's going to not go to the rescue of Lazarus, right? And why does he say? He says, it's not right for me to go there because it's for your sake that these things are happening, that you might see the glory of God. You might see my glory. And so he waits four days. Bad timing from a human perspective, right? In those four days, Lazarus dies. And he's buried. And then we get the, the resolution of, uh, of Martha, Lord, he stinketh. You know, if you open the grave, he's going to smell us up because he's decomposing. Right? And so he's working on God's time throughout the Gospel of John. We, we see this idea that Jesus is not moved by man's time, by man's desires, but rather he's moved by God's desire and God's timing to do God's will. 
So he's being called on by his brothers to go to Jerusalem. He says, it's not my time. In other words, it's not time for me to die yet. So I'm not going to go up publicly. Now, you've got to remember, this feast is the largest feast in Jesus' day. It's larger than Pentecost. It's larger than Passover. Everyone, everyone went, who was anyone, went to the tabernacle, the feast of the tabernacles, the feast of booths. There's a lot of reasons for this, but one of the reasons that many believe that this was the case is because they had developed a belief that this is how their crops would be blessed. This is how they, the women would be fertile if they went to this festival where they were celebrating God's presence with them. And God was being worshipped at, you know, the, by the setting up of these temporary houses. Remember, we talked about the temporary housing they lived in. And during this uh, feast, it expanded to about eight days. And during this time, they lived in these temporary houses to help them remember their home is not the earth, their home is heaven. To remember that God was with their forefathers in the desert where they had no possession, no home, and yet they dwelt in tents. And God dwelt in a tent with His people in the tabernacle. So this festival is to remind them of that. But through the years, it had also developed a kind of a folklore around it where the altar was covered with branches of the crops, the common crops in Jerusalem and, and around the surrounding area. And they would, they would pour water over the altar and surround the altar with water. And then on the last kind of the pinnacle of the feast, they would burn that. And it was as if it was an offering to God that He would bless their crops. There were a lot of uh, traditions which had now been associated with this festival and made it extremely popular. Extremely popular. And so... This, this, uh, this statement by Jesus that my time has not come yet, so I'm not going to go down to Jerusalem at this point, is a statement that he wants to not go down there. They're seeking his life, and he knows if I go down at the beginning of the feast with all of the people, they'll arrest me. So he waits, right? We pick up in verse 9. After he's saying these things, he remained in Galilee. Everybody else is going to the feast. Jesus and his disciples, they stay behind. But after it picks up in verse 10, his brothers had gone to the feast. Then he also went up. Notice the words, not publicly, but privately. They were saying, go with us to the feast, with the crowd. Jesus said, it's not my time. They'll kill me if I do that. See it? But then he doesn't stay in Galilee for good. He lets everybody else go to the feast, and then he comes privately, secretly. Secretly. And the Jews were looking for him. And they were asking around. You can kind of get the feeling here. So in the middle of the feast, after they've been looking for him, then he begins to teach. Okay, but this teaching, it begins in verse uh, 16. This teaching is not in necessarily public. In other words, when, it, when, it's, when I say it's not in public, it was, it, was in a, it was not in the main arena. He wasn't taking the platform in the temple. He wasn't calling attention to himself. He was talking. People were maybe gathering around, but he was just talking to his friends, talking to those who were gathered around. He's still somewhat secretive in his, uh, his time here in the feast. And so he goes through teaching about the fact that his authority is from God, not from man. And the crowd begins to ask questions. You notice the question in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? The crowd doesn't know uh, that the leadership is seeking to kill Jesus. Jesus knows it. 
And so we see that the crowd now is becoming interactive with Christ. And now we pick up in verse 25. The paragraph breaks, and now we have a new, a, a new paragraph. And I want us to read this together. It's on the front of your worship guide, or if you have your Bibles, I'll be reading from the ESV. Some of the people, it says, of Jerusalem, therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. See the timing of God again. Yet many other people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus must be the Christ. It's the title of this message. He must be the Christ. I make that contention because I believe it was the contention of the Jews that gathered there. Look at their statement given to us in verse 31. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They know he's the Christ. I would contend they know he's the Christ because of the response of the Pharisees and the chief priest. They want to silence Jesus as quickly as possible because he's swaying the people. They're seeing the evidence of his Messiahship and they're wanting to follow him now. The Pharisees see their power slipping away. So they want to quickly react to that. Now let's look at two quick points here in this passage. Jesus is obviously the Christ. I think we see that in verses 25 through 31. People may debate the identity of who Jesus is. They debated the identity of who Jesus is then, and they still debate it now. Isn't it a common debate in our day? Don't you hear it often on television? I picked up the paper this morning as I was headed out the door, taking in uh, the house, and some of you may have seen, I didn't read the article. There was an article in there about a Dead Sea Scroll they found, the tablet. And, uh, that, and that seems to indicate that there was a prediction of the Messiah being resurrected before it happened. And there's, there's debate now about whether it happened or not. How, has this not been the error, the time of, of popular scholarship, is what I call it, popular scholarship? It's, it's almost novel. You know, it's almost fiction stuff. Some of it is fiction. You know, Dan Brown made a fortune writing a fiction book. He originally sold it as a fiction book. 
his original statements about the book are that this is a probable thing that happened. You know, it's just kind of my interpretation of what might have happened. And the more money he made and the more that he was invited to speak on TV, the harder he got about it, the facts. You know? I mean, he started out, it was a fiction. And yet, because the debate about Jesus is so real and it's so decisive, it forces people to make a decision. Either you believe in Jesus or you do not believe in Jesus as the Lord. Right? And so, that's such a contentious subject. There's a fortune to be made debating about Jesus. And that's no different today than it was hundreds and even thousands of years ago. The people of Jesus, they debated about who he was. Listen, let's look at the debate here in verse 25. Let's see, isn't there some commonality about this debate and the debate we're having even today? You know, in other words, they're saying, here he is, why don't they just arrest him? This attitude exists today in many scholarly institutions, many so-called seminaries, you know, where professors debate about the validity of God's Word, whether, I mean, we've gone so far in the 1970s that we had a whole seminar of professors who sat around and cast colored balls about whether what was in the Gospels is Jesus, really Jesus' words, or it probably is Jesus' words, or it's probably not, but it might be. Oh, well, this isn't Jesus' word. They took the Gospels, and they looked for the historical Jesus. I mean, that debate rages, and that's exactly what's going on. That's the attitude here. That the common people responded in the 1970s the way the Jews were responding to their leadership. The common churchgoer in the 1970s that heard about the Jesus Seminar, some of you were in the church then. The common response of evangelicals in that time was, this is absolutely ridiculous. We have the Word of God. We have the words of Jesus. I don't need to look for the historical Jesus. This is Him. He's right here in front of us. We see Him with our eyes. That's the attitude of these common Jews. They're looking and saying, These leaders, they're wanting to debate about whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. They want to arrest Him because they don't believe He's the Messiah. Well, why don't they do it? Just do it. I I, I tell you, I have a short fuse for those who want to take the Bible and use it as a cover to keep themselves within the evangelical world while while denying the authority of the Word. Call yourself what you are. You either believe the Word of God and you believe in Jesus Christ or you don't. And if you don't, by all means, say it and put the Bible aside. If you don't believe in the Word, don't hide behind the Word to to do your your scholarship. It's far less offensive to me to have someone who's an atheist, who just does not believe in Jesus, does not believe in God. That's not that offensive. That's not that offensive. I uh, I can see that that is a sad condition to be in, but I can see logically how they arrived there. I cannot understand how someone professes to be a believer and then debates this word from the standpoint of debates it in its authority. This is the same debate that they were having then. People were debating the validity of Jesus then the way they're debating the validity of Jesus today. And the stakes are no different. They wanted to kill Jesus then, and they want to kill Jesus now. You see, the one thing that infuriates the world about Christians is Christians are not tolerant 
You, as I said before, you either believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus. There's no middle ground. There's no, I kind of believe in Jesus, but I hold these other things also. Jesus is all or nothing. And the Jewish people gathered around him at the Feast of Tabernacles are basically coming to that conclusion. If we accept Christ, or accept Jesus as the Christ, then we've got to leave behind everything we've ever known. We've got to leave our Pharisaical leaders. We've got to leave the, the body, the temple. We've got to leave it. There's no accepting Jesus and then grafting him into your belief system, is there? And so it causes a debate. People debate Jesus for that reason. The people don't ever debate Muhammad. People don't, don't debate about Hinduism. Not really. Christians might debate about it. But the world doesn't debate about those things. The world doesn't debate Buddha. They don't mind about Confucius. No problem with those religions. No problem. Why? Because they don't force a man to say in or out. They don't force a man to say, if you accept this, you reject everything else. You see the debate? You see why it exists? And I want to tell you it will always exist. Christians need to quit worrying about that. We don't need to cower down behind the fact that, oh, this terrible dissension is in the world about Jesus. As if we're shocked. He told us it would be this way, did he not? In his own words, he said, if they hated me, how much more would they hate you? If they persecuted the master of the house, how much more would they persecute the servants who serve in the master's house? We need to stop worrying and walking on eggshells about this debate over Jesus' validity. We need to state it as a blunt fact. Lovingly, but bluntly. This is the truth. You accept this or you reject it. Would you agree with that? We're worried way too much about what the world perceives us to be. Intolerance. That's an odd charge to have to worry about, isn't it? Intolerance. You know the only thing the world's intolerant of? Christians. The group that's supposedly intolerant. Has that not shocked you? I mean, they stand up on the bully pulpit and lecture Christian leaders about their intolerance towards all these other groups. And we are intolerant at times when we shouldn't be. I admit it. But then they turn right around and are intolerant to those who they say are intolerant. You can be anything. I had a professor tell me one time to show you the debate and how deep it runs. I had a professor tell me at a secular college as I was going through the history department, the one thing you could not be and keep... The one thing you cannot be and keep your job at a secular institution is an evangelical Christian. You can be anything else you want to be, but in the humanities, in history, in social studies, in all the political science, you can be anything you want to be, but if you profess evangelical Christianity as your stance, you'll never be tenured. Forget it. You just won't get a tenure. That should alarm us, shouldn't it? No, it shouldn't alarm us. That's what Jesus promised. If you accept me, the world will reject you. They will hate you. You're from a different place now. This is not your home. And that's the harsh reality these Jews are coming face to face with. 
It's the harsh reality that you've come face to face with maybe in your life. That by accepting Christ, the rest of what I've known in my life now has turned their back on me. Everybody I've ever learned is loved has turned their back on me. The institutions I once held dear have left me because I love Christ and I hold Him dearly close to my heart. This debate's not new. It's going to continue. It's going to continue throughout the age until Christ returns. And at that point when Christ returns, everyone will confess Him as Lord. He will end the debate. For the rest of eternity. No one will ever again say, I don't know, is he the Christ or is he not the Christ? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not a matter of will you confess him. It's a matter of when will you confess him. It's not a matter of what side of the debate to be on. If you want to win, there's only one side of the debate to be on. That is the side of the verified historical Christ, the Son of God. If you're on the other side, there's a day coming when you will confess that you were wrong, and then it will be too late. There's no other side of the debate. This is really, really uh, integral to our faith. These verses paint a picture that is mirror image of the day we live in. Jesus is there at the feast, and they can't arrest Him, or they won't arrest Him. They're afraid of Him. This is a common theme among the Jewish leadership. They hate the guy, but they're afraid of Him. Their fear comes because of his authority. Jesus is a man who speaks with authority. And so he even causes problems for his opponents. People are debating Christ, and they're really there's a misunderstanding about who he is still in their minds. In verses 25 through 27, there's still a misperception of who he is. Look at it there with me. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, it says in verse 26? And then their answer is, but, but wait a minute, we know where this man comes from. He comes from Nazareth. We know who his father is. His father is Joseph. But if, the, if he's the Christ, we wouldn't know those things about him. We wouldn't know where he comes from. We wouldn't know who his father is. Right? They misunderstood the Old Testament Scriptures, right? They missed, they missed it. They missed the truth about Jesus in the Old Testament. And so they're still in a quandary. That's where we've got them in verse 27. They don't know, is this the Christ? Is this not the Christ? So Jesus clarifies things for them in verse 28. Jesus says, you know me? Now that's not a statement. That's a question. You know me? And you know where I'm from? That's like, really? You, you really think you know who I am? You really think you know where I'm from? I've come not by my will... He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Jesus brings them to the point of decision. I know him, for I come from him, and I'm sent by him. Now, in this debate, what is our position? Where should we be? We need to stay out of the frivolous debates about the validity of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, we need to state that we believe he is who he said he is. We need to stand firm on that fact. And we also need to stand firm on the fact that the reason the debate is raging is because they don't know who God is. In other words, our attitude towards them should not be hatred and anger 
our attitude toward them should be pity and love. Jesus pities these people. Look at his words. I mean, you can hear it in the tone. You, you really think you know me. And you really think you know where I come from. And then look at the end of his conclusion. You don't know who sent me. And you don't know where I'm from. It's pity. It's not anger. It's not ridicule. You see, in this debate that's raging in our world, we do have to make a decision. And that decision is not about which side of the debate to be on. There's only one place to be, right? We believe the Scriptures and we believe the God of the Scriptures. And we believe His Son, Christ, is our Savior. That's settled. The thing we've got to decide is how will we present that? And how will we respond to those who do not believe? And i got to tell you, there's some highly offensive things being done and said in the name of Christ in our day. And they're done by so-called church men. We must be very careful in our response during this debate about Christ. We must be very careful to hold the position of humility. Why do you know? This is, this is the question that I want you to think about. Why do you know who Christ is and why do you know that the Word of God is true? Why? Because God is gracious. Because His Spirit has revealed it to you. Because He has taught you and opened your eyes and opened your ears and brought you to life. Right? And so Paul and Christ would say to us, then why are you arrogant? Why do you boast? As if you're smarter than the people who don't get it. You see, the arrogance which we display in this debate turns people away from Christ, not to Christ. There's a debate raging in Jesus' world and in our world about Christ. Is Jesus the Christ or is He just a good man? Is He just a prophet? Is He just... Maybe a lunatic. I don't know. Some of you may think he's a lunatic. Who is Jesus? Is there a historical Jesus? Did he exist? There's a debate raging, right? The question is not which side of the debate to be on. The question is, how will we present ourselves and our Christ in the debate? That's where it's tough. Because we often get angry quickly. And we get judgmental in our thoughts. And we get high and puffed up and prideful and arrogant about what we know and they don't know. And in that, we turn them from Christ. In a sense, our actions say to them, even if Christ is real, I don't want any part of Him. Jesus' response is not arrogance. Jesus' response is not to pound these poor people over the head. Jesus' response is pity. You don't even know me. And you don't know where I come from. And worse than that, you don't know the Father who sent me. You don't know us. It's pity. It's pity, it's love, it's mercy. Jesus is being debated, and yet Jesus' response is love and concern. And I want us to look, I want us to look at the response of the people. The response of the people is belief. When the Christ appears. Will he do more signs than this man has done? And the resolution to the debate is found later in the chapter. Look at verse 40. 
When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village of David? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The end of the debate is that some believed in Jesus. Some in this crowd were saved. And I'm convinced that they're saved because of the attitude and the love which Christ displayed while they were confused. I'm convinced that His pity for them, His mercy for them, drew them to Him. People responded in belief. Will the Christ do more than this man when the Christ appears? Jesus' time of crucifixion hadn't come yet. We've stated that before, but it's clear in the text that God's timing is still involved at this feast. Jesus' time of crucifixion hasn't come But the people begin to believe. And they believe because of the miracles that he's done. The miracles which we've already studied. The teachings that he professed and taught. Jesus is obviously the Christ. The second paragraph we see here is that Jesus predicts his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to be to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. For where I am, you cannot come. There's total disbelief and lack of understanding on this point. Jesus is teaching them about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. They're thinking he's talking about geography. Right? Where's he going to go that we can't go? He must be talking about going among the Gentiles. Because the Pharisees would never go among the Gentiles. He must be talking about going to teach them. Total misunderstanding. Total disbelief on their part. And yet, Jesus is clearly teaching that he will be buried and resurrected and ascend to the Father. He says, I will be with you a little longer. And in reality, it's just a few Weeks, really, of life. And then I'm going to be with him who sent me. You know, in the end, the thing that has convinced me in this debate about Christ, more than anything throughout my life, what has convinced me that Christ is who he says he is, is the way he treats his enemies. The way he teaches those who don't believe in him. Jesus gives us the model, gives us the picture of how to respond in the debate over the validity of Christ. He gives us the model. What's the model? Pity, love, and mercy. Not anger. Not arrogance. Not ridicule. This debate is raging, and it's raging not in some far-off land, is raging in our world, in our culture, in our community. Our response to the debate about Christ is important. Your role in the debate is important. 
So many times those who hold our doctrinal positions on the Scripture are accused of not loving lost men, of not being burdened for their souls. Well, one, that's a misunderstanding. And two, it's a misunderstanding of the current situation. It's a misunderstanding of history. But secondly, isn't it right at times about us? Sometimes rather than being like Christ and being pitied and burdened for the lost, we're the most arrogant, aren't we? We're the most prideful. We're the most convinced that we're better than the guy who doesn't have it figured out yet. We cast a lot of stones. One of the things that uh, you see in John 7 and 8 and 9 is the unwillingness of Christ to enter into that kind of treatment of others. He has opportunity after opportunity, and he always responds in love, kindness, and mercy. So of all the things I want us to gain from 7, 8, and 9 in John, of all things, there's a lot to gain, okay? But one of the things, if we can walk away from this sermon series on John 7, 8, and 9, believing Christ is who he says he is, and loving those and being merciful to those who don't yet believe, we've come a long way. Maybe you're the arrogant one. Maybe you're the one who's entered the debate in the past from a position of pride. Maybe you're coming to the hard reality that you're the reason, you physically are the reason why people have turned from the gospel. It's not too late to repent from that, to turn from that arrogance and pride, to be humble before the Lord, to hold tightly to the truth and embrace those in loving pity who don't yet understand. Hold tightly to the truth. Don't ever hear me say, well, be patsy and you know, try to get along. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying stand firm and grasp tightly to the truth and yet reach out and embrace and pity those who don't yet know the truth. That's the call for you and I, to be like Christ. So this week, you're going to hit the debate. I'm convinced you're going to hit it. Maybe you haven't in a while, and you're going, it's going to jump in front of you this week. And in that moment, you're going to have the opportunity to respond like Christ or respond in the flesh. And my prayer for us as a church is that we respond like Christ holding to the truth, embracing in pity those who don't yet know the truth. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. And by your truth, we are set free. And yet, Lord, often we return to sin.